In 2016, Green Party candidate Jill Stein garnered 1,457,216 votes, including 51,000 in Michigan, 49,000 in Pennsylvania, and 22,000 in Wisconsin, more than Donald Trump's margin of victory in all three key battleground states. That led to a lot of post-election grousing among mainstream Democrats that progressives and their insistence on political purity basically cost Hillary Clinton the election and handed the White House to arguably the most anti-progressive candidate in decades. But what about this year? How many progressives will still vote green in next week's election or sit this race out because they're not sold on Joe Biden? We'll discuss with two thoughtful progressives, Bianca Gray, the former press secretary to Bernie Sanders, and Ryan Grimm of The Intercept. And we'll get caught up on the latest numbers from the Yahoo News YouGov poll with our national political correspondent, Andrew Romano, on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, we heard so much after the uh, election in 2016 about progressives and all those Jill Stein votes and uh, especially the impact that she would have had in those that she did have in those uh, battleground states. And it kind of surprises me that we haven't heard more discussion of uh, where progressives are going to come down this time around, which is one of the reasons that we wanted to bring in this uh, discussion with Bianca Gray and and Ryan Grimm, which is clearly an important one, the, the, the similarities in 2016 and the very big differences. But I got to say, after we planned this podcast, our intrepid producer, Mark Seaman, uh, pointed our attention to this new headline from The Onion, taking off the recent uh, Netflix film, The Trial of Chicago 7, which is quite good, by the way. Aaron Sorkin defends taking liberties with scene in which all members of Chicago 7 endorse Joe Biden, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> it's a good line. But it does tell you something about where I think progressives are right now. I think they will overwhelmingly vote for Joe Biden because I think they see Donald Trump as, you know, as an existential threat. And so, you know, that that's why so interesting to hear this uh, podcast, this new podcast that's co-anchored by Brianna Gray, along with Virgil Texas. A one-time guest on Skullduggery, and I think I'm safe to say that will be probably permanently one time. But <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> well, no. I, well, we had them on. I want we, them we to have invite them back. On. Whether he'd yeah. come back or not yeah. is another question. But yes, uh, yes, yeah, yeah. So Virgil Texas, who's a charter member of of the uh, the Dirtbag Left, as they call themselves. But what was great about this podcast is they they had um, Noam Chomsky on. And, uh, you know, Noam Chomsky, who, you know, refers to himself as a anarcho-syndicalist, a libertarian socialist, and, you know, one of the most prominent uh, practitioners of radical politics, you know, going back many, many decades. And it was fascinating to hear Noam Chomsky kind of humorlessly <laughs> lecture Brianna and uh, Virgil on the importance of pragmatism in politics and that uh, by not voting for Joe Biden, as I gather they're not going to do, they are voting for essentially voting for Donald Trump or supporting Donald Trump and that that is not, you know, that is not acceptable. And so I think most progressives are going to be where Noam Chomsky is right now. Yeah. But well, no, Noam Chomsky has mellowed in his uh, old age. 
Yeah, I guess yeah. so. I mean, are you aware of other examples of his mellowing? I haven't seen it no, personally. No, I mean, I think but... that was the premier example. I yeah. mean, I, you know, I remember reading uh, Noam Chomsky in, yeah. in high school, and it was about as uh, pure uh, left-wing tracks as, uh, as you could find anywhere. But on the other hand, you know, there clearly is something going on among, particularly among young people, on the left. And, you know, I mean, I think we see it in a lot of different movements out there in the streets. We saw it over the summer, you know, after the killing of uh, of George Floyd. And so I think these are voices that, you know, we all need to pay attention to and listen to, even if, you know, in this particular moment, uh, not everybody agrees with the, the tactics. Um, but anyway, it's a fascinating conversation. Two very, very thoughtful progressives. Right. And before we get to that, though, we've got our colleague, Andrew Romano, with some um, pretty interesting new numbers from the uh, Yahoo News YouGov poll. So let's get right to it. Okay, we now have with us Andrew Romano, national political correspondent for Yahoo with... And data and polling maven. Data and polling maven. Our own Nate Silver. Well, sorry. Too far. (laughs) With our latest numbers, and uh, they're pretty striking. Andrew, what do you got? Well, we have Biden with his largest lead of the entire cycle over Trump. 12 percentage points among likely voters. It's Biden 54% to Trump 42%. And just to put that in perspective, if that were to hold through election day, it would be the first double digit margin since Ronald Reagan in 1984. And the loss for Trump would be the first time an incumbent has lost by a double digit margin since Herbert Hoover in 1932. You know, I saw that in your story on this, and um, I, like about three or four months ago, I said this election could end up being a redux of 1932. That's because that's, you keep talking about 1932, Isakoff, because it's the first election you voted in. <laughs> I'm gonna no, put it the, wasn't I'm the gonna, first. It wasn't the first. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the caveat, I'm gonna put yeah. the caveat here that this doesn't yeah. mean that that Biden's going to win by 12 points. And that yeah, 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 look yeah. at the averages, but it is the biggest result we've had for Biden in our. But the other piece of news for the bedwetters, the Democratic bedwetters who have been worried about that in 2020, this is just going to be a repeat of 2016, where Trump is going to come from behind the YouGov poll exactly four years ago had Hillary ahead only by three points. Yes, exactly. So if you want to talk about 2016 and, you know, both Democratic bedwetters and maybe Trump fans who are, going to, who are saying, all the polls are wrong, like, remember what happened in 2016? Well, YouGov had Hillary ahead by three at exactly this time. She won the national popular vote by two. We all know what happened in the Electoral College, but 3%, a 3% national lead is very different than a 12% national lead. And that's going to trickle down to the states. Well, that's what I wanted to dig into just a little bit, because back at the same time four years ago, Hillary was around the same place that Biden was in in terms of the battleground states. I mean, Biden is a little bit ahead of where she was, but not that much. But you're saying that because he's so far ahead in the national vote, it would be very unlikely for him to do as badly as she did in, in those battleground states. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too much into the wonky details about the polling error in some of these battleground states in 2016, which had to do with undercounting some uh, especially white non-college educated voters. But pollsters have made adjustments since then. 2018 was more accurate in these states than 2016. And it would be surprising, to put it mildly, if there were the exact same polling error and it was enough to overcome a you know eight to twelve point national lead for Biden. So right now it's looking like either we see a polling error, the likes of which we've basically never seen in a presidential election, or something crazy happens in these last eight days that changes the calculus. And as I write in the story, even that doesn't have a ton of opportunity for Trump because so many people have voted already. We've got sixty million people, sixty-one million people as of this morning already voted. That's 14 million more 
than the total early vote from 2016. And we've still got eight days to go. It's just a huge number. Okay, I'm going to be a little contrarian here because that's my natural instinct. But I'm looking at another poll that the New York Times just popped on Texas, which Mm -hmm. has Trump up four points in Texas, which is better than he's done in some of the other recent Texas polls, which showed him neck and neck. But what struck me about this New York Times-Siena poll is the explanation for why Trump is doing better is because he's doing better with Hispanic voters and even African-American voters than had been expected and then had and better than he did against Hillary Clinton in 2016. And it does make me wonder whether there's something going on there below radar that we haven't paid enough attention to. So I'm going to ask you, are you sure? Are you capturing or seeing the same trend among Hispanics and African-Americans? And I should point out with African-Americans, we're talking about a difference of, you know, know, he's still way behind Biden among African-Americans, but doing 12% compared to 8% is what he got in in 2016, and obviously higher among Hispanics. Well, 12%, I mean, if he repeated that nationally, you remember, who was it that we had on the podcast? I think it was Matt Schlapp who said that one of of the Trump campaign's central goals was to get the African-American vote up into the low single digits. So that would be very significant. This is one poll, by the way. Yeah, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be hugely surprised if there was some movement in the African-American vote or the Latino vote. We've seen enough polls suggesting that's a possibility at this point. I also wouldn't be surprised if if Biden won by a larger margin than Hillary Clinton among those groups. What would be surprising to me, and I think the way that that would maybe make a difference for Trump, is if he was holding on to the white vote the way that he won it in 2016. And from our poll, there's this very strong suggestion that he's not. The exit polls in 2016 showed that he won white voters by 20 percentage points, 57% to 37%. We're showing him ahead by three, 47% to 44. So he just hemorrhaged white support. It's a much bigger part of the electorate. You know, that's clearly a, a huge numbers. Just to be specific on this um, Texas poll, it has Biden leading among Hispanics 57 to 34 compared to 2016, where Hillary Clinton won 60 to 29 among Hispanics. So that's a five-point increase for Trump among Hispanics. And, uh, you know, they say this is, in at least in Texas, this is what accounts for him able to make up for the white support he's losing in, in suburbs. But I guess the question is, do we have enough granularity on the sample of Hispanics in our poll with YouGov to be confident that this is not being reflected nationally? I wouldn't get too into the weeds of the subsamples on on Latinos and African-Americans because they're pretty small in our poll, just in terms of if you're talking about, is there a movement of two, three, four points? You know, we show Biden ahead by a lot. But again, I wouldn't be surprised if he did worse than Hillary. I wouldn't be surprised if he did a little better among those groups. I just think there's a range in that, in that the possibilities there. So Andrew, in the story uh, that you've written off this poll, which we're about to publish, you go through some of the key demographic groups that show this unusual, this real strength for Biden right now. And you mentioned white voters, but there are also independent voters. Uh, there are also, uh, one thing, one that I thought was interesting that most voters probably don't think about very much is the number of, the percentage of voters, Clinton voters who say they're now voting for Trump versus Trump voters who say they're now voting for, for Biden. So walk us through some of these key sure. voting blocks. Yeah, we've got 3% of Clinton voters saying they're gonna vote for Trump now, but we have more than twice as many of the 2016 Trump voters saying they're gonna vote for Biden. So 7% of Trump voters from 2016 say they're gonna vote for Biden. If you take away nothing else, that right there would change the results of the election, assuming that the electorate was the same. You can't necessarily assume that, but it does suggest there's more movement towards Biden, towards 
the Democrat than vice versa. We're also seeing a huge margin for Biden among those who voted third party in 2016 or didn't vote at all, especially those who are too young to vote. Now, there's always a question about whether those voters are going to show up, but among the ones that we think are going to show up, there's a, a two to one margin in those groups for Biden. And that adds alone would add four percentage points to his national lead. Yeah, Andrew, because this is a, a subject of this podcast about uh, progressives who supported Jill Stein last time or didn't vote. You're saying that among progressives who did not vote for Hillary Clinton last time, it's a two to one margin. I'm saying that I'm saying this time? anyone who voted third party or didn't vote and is a likely voter in this election, it's a two to one margin for Biden. So progressive well, pardon be- includes libertarian, which would be exactly, normally exactly. Republican if it's not. Maybe. Right. But you're right. what you're seeing is a much larger number of those either non-voters from 2016 or third party voters gravitating towards Biden than towards Trump. OK, he- now, what's the timing on when uh, you did this polling? Was it all post-debate? Did all post-debate, yep. It was all the 23rd post-debate. to the 25th, and we didn't capture any movement based on the debate. Essentially, the debate results were whichever candidate you already supported, you thought that person won. So it's just a total wash. Total wash. We didn't see any movement there. It was basically just it replicated the, the vote preference. Now, uh, one of the issues that came up in the debate, however, because it was kind of breaking around the same time, was questions surrounding Hunter Biden's laptop and, you know, the allegation of influence peddling. What was the reaction of the people we polled uh, to that issue? You know, I won't call it a scandal because I don't know that it is a scandal, but uh, right. that controversy. I mean, it's certainly something Trump has been focusing on in the final days. He's trying to replicate what happened in 2016, where questions about Hillary Clinton's emails in the last days of the election led a lot of undecided voters to break for Trump. But we're not really finding any evidence of that movement. There is some evidence of opportunity for Trump, perhaps opportunity in a different context. That is, a lot of people have heard about this. We have 39% saying they've heard a lot about the laptop, 37% saying they've heard a little about the laptop. So people hearing something about it is up almost near 80% of the electorate. But we're not, partisans on either side are sort of saying it's, you know, they're sort of fixed in their ideas about it. So people who support Trump are saying we've heard too little about it. People who support Biden are saying we've heard too much about it. People who support Trump are saying Biden clearly did something wrong. People who support Biden are saying he didn't. What I thought was interesting was independents are evenly divided, 41% to 40%, on the question of whether Biden himself committed any wrongdoing. So that suggests that at least some people who aren't committed partisans in the middle are questioning whether Biden was somehow involved in something wrong here. The problem for Trump, one, as I mentioned, is there's not a lot of time left and a lot of votes have been banked. And two, those same independents say by an 11 point margin that Trump and his family are more corrupt than Biden and his family. So it's hard to capitalize on that when those voters already think that you're worse than the person you're accusing of wrongdoing. So I don't see it moving a lot of votes unless we learn something huge and sort of game-changing in the final days of the campaign. And even then, so many people have voted that he really, Trump would have to start peeling off people who, you know, say that they can't change their mind and already support Biden. It would have to be huge. I want to ask you just one more question about this early vote, which is so huge, because I'm a little confused reading about this, following it on Twitter. What can you draw from the early vote and what can you not draw from it in terms of who it's really going to benefit? Because I think it's clear that at least up until now, the early vote has been, party identification among early voters has been overwhelmingly Democratic, but that will shift. So what can we learn from what we know so far? Well, I mean, I think the biggest, yes, as you said, we can tell about voter registration. We can't tell who people are voting for, at least not from the official tallies. So we've got about 61 million early votes. I think they were going about 65% to about 30% Democratic registration versus Republican registration. So pretty heavily Democratic. When you look at polls, 
it suggests that people who say they've already voted are voting heavily for Biden. So in our poll, when we, we had the, these numbers last week, I think it was 75% for Biden in the early vote. And the biggest thing, we don't know how many people are going to show up to vote for Trump on election day. I would caution anyone who thinks that um, we're only going to see enthusiasm on the left in this election to rethink that. There are going to be a ton of Trump voters who show up both in these last days of early voting and on election day. We don't know the relative scale of those two uh, sort of voting blocks, but we do know that Biden is banking a lot of votes. And again, Trump is trailing in the polls by eight to 12 percentage points, 12 percentage points according, according to our poll. He needs things to change. The more people who vote and the more who vote for Biden, the less opportunity he has to, to sort of alter the dynamic. And that, that's a big deal. So, Andrew, I'm looking at uh, Real Clear Politics as we speak on their latest polls, and you see polls all over the map. You know, we're coming out today with this 12-point lead for Biden. IBD, TIPP poll, general election, has Biden up seven. That's five less than we do. And Rasmussen, which is a Republican poll, actually has Trump up one. Can you explain how polls can be as different as all of these are? It's a big it's a big question. I mean, it has a lot to do with each pollster's methodology. They apply a thing called a they apply weighting to try to get an accurate representation of the electorate based on what they think is going to happen. When you get into likely voters, they start to make judgments about who they think is likely to vote or not vote. That's why I would say, as much as I want people to read our poll story, and they should go to Yahoo News and read it, that look at the big picture. Look at the average, like Real Clear Politics does, like 538 does. Lots of different methodologies, uh, lots of different results. Average them together. Look at the big picture. And the big picture has Biden up by eight to nine points on average. We'll see when some more post-debate polls come out, because ours is one of the first. We'll see where how that moves over the last week. And that's really what people should be looking at. I hear sometimes people say you should look at registered voters. Other people say you should look at likely voters. Some people say don't look at likely voters because that means the pollsters are saying they know what the electorate looks like and they don't. What, right. What's your take on that? Usually most... Uh, reputable pollsters switch or add a likely voter screen after Labor Day as it gets closer and closer to the election. Again, my my take on it is look at look at the the totality of the picture. Um, once you start averaging these polls together, you're going to get I think a lot more accurate sense than if you look at any one poll or any one methodology. And you know, for all the people who said the polls were wrong in 2016, they were wrong in some states, but these na the national numbers were almost exactly spot on. There's always polling errors. They go in different directions. 2016, we saw in some states that Trump overperformed his polls. I was looking back at uh, 2012, pollsters underestimated Barack Obama's support by about four percentage points nationally and in the states. So it can switch. So when we say maybe the polls are wrong, maybe we'll see what we saw in 2016 again with Trump, possibly. It would still have to be a bigger error in order for him to catch up. We could see what we saw in 2012 with Obama, which is that Biden is leading by more than 12 points. We, we, don't, we don't know. Um, and, and in that sense, we'll have to wait until election day to see. You know, I do wonder, Dan asked you the question about the Hunter Biden stuff, but the other thing that came up in the debate that uh, Trump is trying to make some hay out of is Biden's comments about fracking and uh, transitioning away from the oil industry, which does strike me, or fossil fuels, it does strike me that in, in some states that can cut. And I wonder. Well, Texas, saw, for example, where. Well, of course. Well, maybe Texas, in Texas. But also, but even in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is another big one. And he's hitting he's hitting that pretty hard in Pennsylvania. Are you seeing any evidence that that issue is getting some traction out there? Not yet. Not yet. I mean, it's 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 been an issue throughout the election. And, and Biden's stance on it is kind of complicated. He says that he's talking about federal lands when he when he mentioned before um, transitioning away from fracking. Look. Again, the, not to be a total wonk here, but the, the average of the polls in, in Pennsylvania puts Biden up by about six or seven percentage points. Again, we could, we could have a polling error, but right now he's in the lead there. That is the state that's likeliest to be the tipping 
point state, the one that if Biden wins, it would put him past 270 electoral votes. So I do think it's one to watch. I think these issues are going to be important in the final days, but it's on Trump to make up ground at this point. And, uh, you know, with each passing day, he has less time to do that. Well, you've got uh, one more coming before Election Day. Yep, the the day before Election Day. So it's got a short shelf life on it, but it'll <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're not going to be able to do much with that by the time we get it out there. <laughs> yeah, it'll be our final glimpse and we'll see we'll see if there's any movement in this last week. All right. Well, we'll be back with you uh in any case. Uh Andrew, thanks once again. Thank you guys. We now have with us Brianna Gray, former press secretary for Bernie Sanders in his presidential run, and now the co-host of the Bad Faith podcast. Brianna, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And we have Ryan Grimm, Washington Bureau Chief of The Intercept and the new host of the Deconstructed podcast. Ryan, welcome back as well. Great to be here. So we wanted to have the two of you on together because we wanted some insight into where progressives are right now as this election approaches. Clearly, the progressive vote got a lot of attention in 2016 because the votes for Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate in key battleground states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, exceeded the margin that Donald Trump won in those states on. So it's clearly something we wanted to pay a lot of attention to. And Brianna, I want to start with you because um, you got a lot of attention uh, recently for your discussion on your podcast with Noam Chomsky, who was kind of um, lecturing you on the dangers of not supporting Joe Biden in this race, and you pushed back on that. So tell us where you are. I gather you are not going to vote for Joe Biden, but want to hear it from you and your explanation for why not. Well, first, first I want to say that in 2016, Bernie Sanders supporters supported uh, Hillary Clinton, voted for Hillary Clinton at above average rates. They supported Hillary Clinton at twice the rate that the Hillary Clinton supporters in 2008 supported Barack Obama, right? So more Hillary Clinton supporters in 2008 voted for John McCain than Bernie Sanders supporters in 2016 stayed home or voted for Trump or what have you. Um, So additionally, I would like to point out that if you were to get rid of all the third parties because the libertarian third party candidate had something like three times as many votes as Jill Stein, it would have dramatically increased Trump's margin of victory in those states. So I think it's it's not quite accurate just to look at the raw numbers of vote totals and presume that all of those Jill Stein voters would inure to Hillary Clinton's benefit in the first place, and that you wouldn't have to consider all of the libertarian votes that were actually also more popular than the third party ticket. But to your point about how I'm voting this time around, I think that there's an undue attention to how individuals, particularly ones like me who live in solidly blue states like New York, I'm still registered in New York and living in DC now, vote. And the question that we raised on the podcast wasn't about how anyone should vote in a given election cycle, which I don't think is my responsibility to dictate one way or the other, but about these longer term questions of how the pressure to vote blue no matter who against what always seems to be and is accurately described as the worst Republican candidate in American history. They just keep getting worse and worse and worse, it seems. If that trend continues, What role does the fact that Democrats are always willing to vote for the Democratic candidate no matter what play? What role do we play in the fact that we are never willing to put our foot down and demand more of our party? And are we letting Joe Biden off the hook when we could be pressuring him to be, and again, this was recorded a while back, but he could have conceivably been pressured to be a better candidate that would have had stronger chances in electoral contest against Donald Trump. Let me just, before we bring Ryan into this, I just want to explore your ideas on this just a little bit more. First of all, I get your point about living in D.C. and very, you know, or people who are in very blue states. But what would you say to somebody who lives in, you know, a a swing state? Pennsylvania, for instance. You know, in in Pennsylvania right now about what they ought to do, understanding that you don't want to, 
you know, impose your views on other people or lecture them on how they ought to vote. But in terms of some sort of sense of civic responsibility, should they sit this out? Joe Biden participated in a town hall in Pennsylvania a week or so ago. And during that town hall, a young black man um, who's about 21 years old, a college student in Pennsylvania who's from Pennsylvania, asked him to address the level of disaffection that younger voters feel toward his campaign and politics in general, in particular young black voters. And he asked him to respond to that feeling of being disaffected without using the phrase, uh, you ain't black. And we had that young man on our podcast last week on Bad Faith, and I had a long conversation with him about how he's feeling about voting. And you know, he's planning to vote for Joe Biden, as are most of his peers, despite being incredibly frustrated about Biden's insistence um, on talking about how he will not ban fracking, despite the fact that he has said in the middle of a global pandemic that's unprecedented in many respects, that he would veto a Medicare for all bill if it came across his desk, even if it passed Congress. You know, all of these intentional slights and punches at the left have left him feeling really bruised and broken like a lot of voters. He personally is just, has made the choice to go ahead and vote for Biden regardless, but a lot of people aren't going to make the same choice. And I think the question should be, what responsibility does Joe Biden and the Democratic Party have to maximize the number of voters that vote for him? Because votes in those states are really crucial. to. But it's too late for that. I mean, at this point, it's too late for that. So what do you do? It's too late for Joe Biden to be a better candidate. Well, in the next eight days. Well, look, this is a conversation that I've been having since I, I first wrote my first piece on this subject in Current Affairs magazine back in July, I believe. And it was called um, uh, something about litmus test, I forget the exact title, sorry. <laughs> but the point that I made then, and which I think is still true, is that Democrats have advertised loudly that they will vote for anyone who is better than Trump, even in the most marginal of ways. And we saw that in the course of the Chomsky interview when he said that he would vote for Michael Bloomberg. Now, a lot of people would sit and, t- and tell me that Michael Bloomberg is infinitely better than Uh, Donald Trump. And Chomsky said this as well. But I think that depends a lot on your perspective. And if you were a Black person living in New York, particularly a Black man during the Bloomberg administration, as I did, and as my brother did, and as my friends and family members did, who experienced what it was like to be harassed and surveilled the way that the Bloomberg administration did. And I think that the Democratic Party rightly articulates and accentuates the importance of things like uh, the environment, and the importance of these kind of big structural issues. But for a lot of voters, and you can, you can castigate them, you can blame them, you can shame them all you want, but it's not irrational for them to be prioritizing the things that are happening in their immediate life. And the kind of thumbing your nose at these voters and the kind of indifference to what they are going through on a daily basis um, is having an electoral effect with certain populations, including black voters becoming increasingly disaffected and unwilling to vote in lockstep with the Democratic Party without getting something in return more meaningful. Let's bring Ryan in. Ryan, what would you say to Brianna? I, I'm curious how kind of American a conversation this is. And I, I suppose partly because we have a first-past-the-post two-party system and most other countries do not, that, that that alone makes it you know fairly unique to America discussion. But, but it also feels like quintessentially American to, to spend so much energy thinking about these, these, it, what is in many ways the smallest, a person's, you know, tiniest contribution to civic life, like the, the, the one vote that they, that they give to the ballot box. Um, I, but on the other hand, if you look back throughout American history, right or wrong, you don't really find any evidence of politicians or parties responding to non-voters and trying to win them back or even to third-party voters and trying to win them back. What you do find is when people switch parties, then the entire media infrastructure and the two-party system goes berserk trying to figure out how to get them back. So, you know, you ha- you've had all of this time, the, the media folk, you know, going to every diner they can find in Ohio, looking for people who switched from Obama to Trump and wondering how they can, uh, how Democrats can win them back. You didn't you had the same numbers of people who switched from Obama to third party, but you had roughly zero intellectual energy focused on how you can get those people back to voting for Democrats. And that's both when it comes to the, the party infrastructure, the party leaders, 
and also the media. And so from Brianna's perspective, you know, if she really does want people like the parties to pay attention to her, she's got to go vote for Trump. <laughs> like you have to like, you have to actually switch to the other major party. Cause there's this like unwritten rule in American politics that like once, once you either don't vote or you vote third party, you don't get spoken about anymore in, in polite conversation. You know, it's like we're Why a two party system right? and I take it neither of you are going to vote for Donald Trump. But just to be clear, there's going to be a lot of our listeners listening to this right now who will just be furious saying, look, this is, you know, bar none, the most important election of our lifetime. Donald Trump represents an existential threat to American democracy and any progressive has no choice but to do everything he or she can to prevent Donald Trump from having another term in office. So I just and I and I, you know, that's what a lot of people are thinking and probably shouting right now when they're listening to this. So I just want you both to respond to what they are inevitably saying. Ryan, you go first. Well, just to be clear, I actually agree with that. So I've all I voted early. I voted for Biden. Like there was there was never any question that I was going to vote for, you know, what whatever clown was put up against Donald Trump. Like that's that's where I've been at. I think that AOC's approach to this is is the most reasonable, which is that there are two potential candidates right now. Which of these is going to be more receptive to being protested? If you try to surround the White House and demand a particular issue, which one of these is going to going to shoot at you? And which one of the these is going to negotiate with the protesters and try to come to some common ground? And, and when, when you ask it that way, rather than which one of them is a good person that's going to do good things, the answer is obviously Biden. Biden is, is going to talk to the protesters. Trump is going to clear them out with tear gas. And in a second term, probably start a little bit more lethal activity. Brianna? Um, Black Lives Matter started under Barack Obama. And there was a large degree to which his being a figurehead as a Black man um, was able to pacify and minimize the outrage around the longstanding heinous behavior of law enforcement toward Americans, particularly Americans that are Black and Brown. There, I'm old enough to remember a certain beer summit, which was meant to pacify and kind of paper over the enormous rifts that predated Barack Obama, persisted under Barack Obama, and continue into the current time. Donald Trump didn't create, invent police violence. He certainly foments it and encourages it in ways that are unique and terrifying. But what's also terrifying to a lot of people, particularly Black voters and other marginalized groups, is the wanton, callow indifference shown by Democrats who are more prosperous, who are more affluent. The second that a president is installed who no longer embarrasses them publicly on an international stage. And that is not a reason, I'm not an accelerationist, it's not a reason to vote for Trump. And I deeply respect all of those people in swing states who feel like the most important thing is to get Donald Trump out of office because he's the person that you want to be protesting against to push him left. The question that I keep raising is what we're going to do after November 3rd to make sure that we're not in this identical situation three years, a year before the next election. I don't want us to be having the same conversation about how we have a, a candidate that doesn't support Medicare for all, a candidate that doesn't believe that healthcare is a human right, a candidate that's not willing to legalize marijuana, which is the source of so much of our uh, mass incarceration and the inequities in our criminal justice system, right? We have so many of these people who have been killed by the police who were stopped and pulled over because of minor drug offenses. We have people like Philando Castile who was stopped and pulled over so many times because of poverty, right? Because he wasn't able to fix his taillight and he had all of these citations against him for his car, right? Because he couldn't, he simply couldn't pay off his fines and he ended up dead. So I think my push is to consider the longer game here. And if we're constantly willing to say, you know, Joe Biden isn't Bloomberg, but an admission that you would vote for even Bloomberg 
means that the Democratic Party has carte blanche to move rightward and rightward and rightward and follow the Republican Party into the abyss. And what I would like to do is have a conversation strategically about how we're able to prevent that from happening. And to the earlier point about folks not caring if you vote green, they only care if you vote for Republicans. I don't, and I, I put this to Ryan, because I, I don't know, you're obviously you know, much more experienced in politics than I am. My concern, my theory as to why that happens is because both the Democrats and the Republicans understand that there's a, mo a middle range of voters who they can court without having to change what they substantively fight for. They can keep taking corporate donations, they can keep offering middling incrementalist policies for Americans. And if they were to try to seek out a Green Party voter or people who stay at home because they're checked out of the system because they're tired of all of that kind of corruption, then they'd actually have to change what they stand for so they don't bother. And to me, the fact that in particular Black voters are such a strong voting bloc that we vote as a group and that we are becoming quickly disgruntled as much as we are ignored, right? Because we're a captured constituency, we are also ignored. Those things come together that eventually we could realize our power as could other con constituencies, the same way that union were able to organize power to influence the vote and, and ultimately organize so that our votes had to be paid attention to um, by the Democratic Party or they would lose and the onus would be more clearly on them for not doing what was needed to be done to meet the basic needs of their constituents. I know you say you're not an accelerationist, but do you think it would be easier to have the conversation that you want to have if Joe Biden is defeated and Donald Trump were elected? I mean, what is your view that progressives should not vote for Joe Biden? I didn't say that. Okay, that's I, just I so... I have not said what progressives, okay. anybody should do with respect okay. to their vote. I've been right. very, very clear on that. And ironically, if I can just say, I have been going out of my way not to influence the vote, but people keep trying to pin me down on an answer. And you know, like, it's like, what do you, it's like, it's almost like I'm being asked to talk people out of voting for Biden. I'm minding my own business in my corner of the world. Do you know what I mean? What I'm trying to do is have a conversation about what we do after November 3rd. I think that's really interesting. I, I was accused by, you know, Professor Chomsky of, you know, being overly focused on electoral politics and all of these things. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm expressly asking you, what changes, what do we do differently to make sure that we have a better outcome, that we can push Biden left. Because what we saw this summer was the largest protest in American history that had zero effect on Joe Biden's policy. So all of the folks that say, oh, we're gonna join hands and hold his feet to the fire as soon as he's elected, I'm with you. But when are we going to make the space to have a conversation for what that entails, what that looks like, and, and what, how, we can, how can we can credibly make that claim, given that despite all of the protests in the streets this summer, despite the, the enormous amount of public sympathy following them, the um, Joy, uh, George Floyd, that he persists in maintaining his same um, stance on criminal justice, spent the last three months haranguing uh, leftists about law and order and, and racing solidify his stance on that um, as compared to Donald Trump, and remaining indifferent to policies like marijuana legalization, which are overwhelmingly popular, not just with Democrats, but with Republicans. Since you mentioned the uh, Noam Chomsky exchange, which did go viral out there, we've got a clip from that. Mark, can you play that? And let's get both uh, Brianna and uh, Ryan to um, weigh in on it. What are the long-term consequences of everybody on the broad left, Democrats, liberals, everyone, saying that under any circumstances, we will vote for a Democratic candidate as long as they are incrementally better than the Republican candidate. Does that way of thinking contribute to the rightward shift of the Democratic Party over years? And what mechanism will ever stop that shift if we're not willing to ever, under any circumstances, leverage our votes? What you're saying, if you think it through, is we should help Trump win because maybe in the long run, that'll affect the Democratic Party. That's a terrible choice. Helping Trump win, as you're proposing, would mean four more years of destruction of the environment, getting possibly to tipping points, uh, which would be irreversible, certainly making any effort to deal with it very difficult. It would mean stacking the judiciary with young ultra-right lawyers, top to bottom, so that nothing would be possibly done for a generation and I can go on and on. Brianna, tell us why you think 
Chomsky was wrong. I think what's really remarkable in that response and the response that I get typically to this is that nobody can imagine a world where we leverage our votes in Joe Biden or whatever moderate Democrat, whatever, I'm sorry, they're not moderate because progressives have the moderate position in terms of politics in America. We are the middle. Corporate Democrats like Joe Biden, they, no one can even just imagine the scenario where they actually get better. In my scenario, we the, withholding one's vote or the threat to withhold one's vote encourages the Democratic candidate to embrace these overwhelmingly popular reforms that both Democrats and Republicans want. 88% of Democrats support Medicare for all, a single-payer healthcare system. A slim majority, like 51% of Republicans support it as well. And for some reason, the idea of making the demand that the Democratic nominee embrace those kinds of policies that would in fact make their candidacy more powerful and more able to defeat Trump is perceived as voters wanting Trump to win, as opposed to Joe Biden leaving cards on the table that could bolster his electoral chances. And yes, principally, importantly, make him a better candidate and make people's lives better. What do you say to, I want to say to Ryan's point that by not, you're not going to vote for Trump, I assume, and, and so you're not going to vote for Biden, that by not voting or voting third party, that you actually give up your leverage as, as a voter because, you know, major party candidates don't really care what non-voters or third party voters think. Yeah, I think that individuals making individual choices are very easy to um, stigmatize, to dismiss, et cetera, which is why I've been so, so eager to have a conversation with and I'm still struggling to find someone who's willing to engage with me about how to organize and do messaging around that organization effort that makes it clear what the um, withholding of the votes is about and to have a clear list of demands next time around issued in a timely fashion that could affect outcomes. So, so this, isn't, this isn't rocket science. This isn't the, I'm not reinventing the wheel. In 2000, little known history is that Ralph Nader went to Al Gore with a list of 10 or 20 demands, requests, and said, look, pick any three and I won't run. And Al Gore said, nah, I'm good. Now you can say that Ralph, it was Ralph Nader's, you know, Ralph Nader was a but-for cause of the 2000 election. Or you could say that it's Al Gore's um, refusal to even consider a few progressive concessions are the but-for cause. You could also obviously point to the Democratic voters in Florida who voted for George Bush in larger numbers than anybody voted for Ralph Nader, but that's a whole other kit and caboodle. So Ryan, you know, uh, Brianna talks about leveraging progressives to move the Democratic Party to the left, but, you know, I'm watching the debate last week in the aftermath in which Biden was challenged on his position on fracking and transitioning away from the uh, from fossil fuels and seemed to move to the right rather than to the left, saying, well, on fracking, he only wanted to ban fracking on federal lands and fossil fuels and the oil industry. He's talking about a lengthy transition. It seemed like, if anything, he was moving in the opposite direction from where Brianna would want him to go. And I guess the question is, how are progressives processing that? Well, the same way they've processed it every four years for 200 years. You know, the, the candidate that wins the primary kind of shuffles a little bit to the center in the, in the general election. That's, that's typically how it's been done. My, my own take is that on the one hand, yes, like le leveraging your vote in the in general election is key, and you have to do that in an organized fashion. But the way, the way that that's done is it's done early, and it's done by leaders who have a social base, like Bernie Sanders, Sunrise Movement. Let's say Elizabeth Warren goes to Joe Biden and says, you know, these are the these are the things that that I want for a full on endorsement. Ocasio Cortez did a version of that. Here are the things that I want you to commit to. And boom, now, I, now I'm going to endorse you. But for individual voters or kind of a, a loose collection of grassroots voters to try to do the same thing is much more difficult. And it's really, to me, arguing from a very weak position. It's saying, we're going to withhold our votes from you unless you be slightly better than the bad you know, candidate that, that you are now, rather than arguing from a strong position, which is that we're going to organize and we're going to beat you and we're going to control the Democratic Party. 
and then you're going to ask us for concessions. And that's precisely what Brianna did in 2019. You know, she and all of the other organizers behind Bernie Sanders said, you know, we're not trying to wrest concessions away from the establishment here. We're trying to wrest control of the entire party. And, you know, but for a, a bad weekend, you know, they, they came very close to accomplishing that, that goal. And to me, that's, that's a much more fruitful goal of, of politics is to, you know, have a head-to-head argument, battle it out and beat the other side. If you have that battle and you lose, and then, you know, in the immediate aftermath, I think you, you want to extract as many concessions as you can, but realistically you lost. And so you're only going to get so, get so much. But do, do you think that Biden's post-debate comments have hurt him, in which he does seem to be walking away from some of the rhetoric behind the Green New Deal? Do you think that's hurt him with progressives? I mean, not, I don't think that particular moment did, because this is Joe Biden. Like, he spent the primary telling people that if they didn't like what he stood for, they should go vote for Donald Trump. He insulted and belittled them at every turn. He reminds people constantly, I beat the socialist. You know, so if you're a progressive and you're voting for Joe Biden, it's not because he, you know, said nice things to you and 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 won you over. It's because you made the pragmatic decision that the world is is potentially better off with him as president than than Donald Trump. Not because you think he's going to be a great president or his soaring rhetoric and his like, you know, his movement background has has driven you to support him, you know, quite, quite the opposite. And so what more do you need to hear from from Joe Biden? So I, so I don't think that incrementally, you know, one more swipe at, at progressives is going to it's going to cost him much since people aren't backing him because they believe he's progressive to begin with. I think on net, people probably came out of the, the lefties probably came out of the debate like, hey, he accidentally for a while said he was going to get rid of oil. I'll take that. Um, even though he did it in his, even though he did it in his kind of awkward fashion where oil, oil pollutes. Like, all right. All right, guys. Well, so on November 3rd, I think progressives are going to overwhelmingly vote for Joe Biden. What do you think needs to be done so that more people on the left feel the way uh, you do, Brianna, about... I think, well, I think that voting for Joe Biden is a perfectly rational choice. I'm not hoping that Donald Trump wins. So, of course, I'm not rooting for people not to vote no, for I Joe Biden. No, I get that. I get that. But you, but to achieve the goals that you would like to achieve here, it would be if there was a show of force, if a lot more people used the lever as leverage, as it were, that would be helpful to your cause. Well, look, I, I, I made my case months ago. And I have not positioned myself as any kind of political leader because I'm not one. I'm not an organizer. I'm not an activist. And I don't want to step on anybody's toes. I hopefully observed the protests of over the summer and thought that they might pitch their demands in electoral terms and take them to Joe Biden and extract concessions. Um, and I was disappointed to see that if that work was done, it wasn't effective. Right. It, it didn't work. And it wasn't if they made that effort, it, they didn't publicize it. Right. Because part of making a demand like that, part of the leverage you have is to be able to say, we asked Joe Biden for X and he didn't do it because that's where Joe Biden gets hurt. Right. That's where morale falls and he loses votes. But if everything happened in private and everyone just slunk away. So what, I, what I'm saying is the only reason we're having this conversation close to the election is because other people didn't pick up this mantle earlier months ago, and I didn't feel like I was well positioned to do so. I think that a couple years from now, as we're looking down the prospect of a Joe Biden second term or a Kamala Harris term, and they have platforms that don't align with what majorities of Americans want, much less majorities of Democrats, that people should think very critically about organizing in a way to hold, withhold their vote in a way that would be meaningful. This exact same way that all of these candidates court, or at least used to court, union endorsements when unions could deliver blocks of votes in a reliable way. Just the way that everyone understands the Democratic Party would be at a complete and total loss if it lost the Black vote. Just the way 
by the way, Donald Trump, uh, sorry, uh, Joe Biden, <laughs> brilliant. Uh, Joe Biden has been aggressively courting uh, conservatives and has alluded to the fact that John Kasich might be a member of his administration. You know, there are no, you know, there's some suggestion that, that uh, Bernie Sanders might be as well, but you, no one can argue that the hardcore press for conservatives hasn't vastly eclipsed any desire to court progressives. In fact, there has been almost a, a, not even just a lack of desire to court progressive, but an active rejection of progressive votes because they take them for granted. They understand that progressives are going to do the right thing and save the world just like they do every time, despite being castigated and despite being still blamed for Donald Trump's win in 2016. So I think that on some level, people have to learn that lesson. And it's a hard lesson to learn. By the way, uh, you, you mentioned the possibility that Bernie Sanders would go in, into a uh, Biden administration. I think there's been some talk about him maybe um, serving as labor secretary. Would you be in favor of that? Or do you think in some sense, if you were going inside the uh, a Biden administration, you give up some of the leverage that you think it's important to, to marshal? I have an enormous amount of respect for Senator Sanders. And you know, I presume that he knows on some level what he's doing. Labor secretaries don't set policy. You know, like it, it's difficult for me to, he can be VP, but Joe Biden has been very clear that he does not support Bernie Sanders policies. Kamala Harris supported as a senator. She dropped these policies when she started running for president, but she supported many of Bernie Sanders policies, was one of the first people to sign on to Medicare for All in 2017, et cetera. Um, and she is VP or will be VP and has been told to <laughs> distance herself from everything that she used to believe in. I think it's more likely uh, Bernie Sanders will be offered Secretary of Veterans Affairs. He had chaired the Veterans Committee in the Senate. Um, whether he'll take that or not, I don't know. But Brian, we are taping this on the day that Amy Coney Barrett is going to be confirmed by the full Senate, giving conservatives a clear majority on the Supreme Court. A lot of progressives, liberals want to see an end to the filibuster if the Democrats take back the Senate and an expansion of the court. Biden's response at this point is he'll appoint a national commission to examine these uh, issues, uh, which strikes a lot of people as your classic Washington dodge. Do you expect to see a lot of pressure from the left on Biden and the Democrats to expand the court if uh, the D's take back control of the Senate? And would you be a part of that pressure? Well, I do expect a lot of that. And what, one quick thing on voting before we leave that completely in the dust. I think that it actually makes a ton of sense to withhold or threaten to withhold your vote six months out from an election. And I actually think Brianna is probably voting for Joe Biden because at this point. I can see her now on Zoom. She's totally stone faced, as you said that. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Look at the poker face. She can correct yeah. me. If, she can correct me if I'm wrong, but. I think She's silent. You know, she, you know, she, she, and a lot of other people played their card, and they should have played the card. Biden more or less ignored them, and, and at that point, you pick your card up. And I think, or most people, I think, will do that. On the Supreme Court, yes. Now, Mitch McConnell, you know, just said something utterly remarkable recently. One of the more kind of exuberant expressions he's offered on the on the Senate floor. This is Mitch McConnell in his full joy. He said something like, a lot of what we've done over the last four years is going to be undone by the election that's coming in a few days, but we should be deeply proud of what we're contributing to the country today because what we're doing now, they won't be able to undo for a very, very long time. This is not, this is not him speaking to donors and getting caught on secret audio. This is him you know, speaking on the Senate floor, you know, celebrating this, this cementing of the supermajority on the Supreme Court. So Mitch McConnell seems to believe quite firmly that Democrats are, are not going to do anything to undo what he's just done. He believes that so firmly, he thinks he can basically taunt them before he's even done it. Now, I think part of it depends on what the Supreme Court actually does. Because the fact is, people don't care about process. You know, the average voter and even the uh, above and below average voters don't care about the filibuster. They don't care how many justices are on the Supreme Court. They don't care how many circuit courts there are. Uh, they don't know how many 
justices are, are on the Supreme Court. What they do care about is what, what that court does. And so if a Supreme Court started injecting itself into people's lives by undoing Obamacare, by, t- by tightening restrictions on, on abortion or, or overturning Roe v. Wade entirely, or overturning other pieces of, let's say, Democrats do manage to pass decent legislation. They lower the Medicare age to 50, and, and then boom, Supreme Court says, no, you actually can't do that. Then I th- then people are going to start to care, and then I think Democrats then will get, get the will to, to actually act. But I think the court probably has a pretty long leash where they can, they can work their will within certain parameters without angering Democrats so much that they they actually undo or they actually add add to the court because that's not their it's not their inclination it's not it's not who they are well final question uh, for both of you and this gets back to the election jill stein got uh, 1.4 million votes in 2016 this year, the uh, Green Party candidate is Howie Hawkins. He's actually been a guest on Skullduggery, like the two of you have been, but I think it's fair to say he hasn't made much of a ripple or gotten much attention. How many votes do you expect he's going to get this time around, and do you think progressive votes could make a difference in the margin in some of these key battleground states in the way they did in 2016? Brianna? I don't expect him to do as well as Jill Stein. Jill Stein benefited from a lot of principled dissatisfaction with Hillary Clinton from the left. Remember, you know, in the months leading up to the 2016 election, um, the biggest environmental issue, uh, one of the biggest protest issues at the time was the Dakota Access Pipeline. The protests there were getting incredibly violent uh, at the hands of the police. The violence was from the cops, spraying water hoses at people, protesters were having their arms broken. And Hillary Clinton was silent on it. She refused to comment on it at all. She you know, supported fracking along with Barack Obama. So Jill Stein brought a lot of attention to that event. Uh, her arrest there as, as, a, as a protester was one of the first times that national attention was paid to it. People like AOC were pre- protesting there, were radicalized by that um, and Bernie Sanders' support of those protesters. So I, she basically was able to claim a lot, a lot bigger um, position, a lot more significant position in the national scale because of her activism and because of the frustration with Hillary Clinton. Howie Hawkins doesn't have that. I would, let, though, point out that strategically, a lot of people will still vote green. Some people will still vote green because uh, of the desire to get the party to have national uh, federal matching funds, federal funding, if they get a certain percent of the vote. Uh, if they get 5% of the vote, they get federal funding and also ballot access across states. So it makes it a lot easier for the party to run more substantive and principled candidates over time. I also want to point out that people have, or not principled, uh, but more able candidates over time, shall we say, uh, that there's a new effort to start another third party movement uh, with the People's Party, which is interesting that people should continue to watch because regardless of how you feel about the Green Party, I think that even more moderate liberals can and do appreciate that there is a very tenuous relationship between what our politicians fight for and what we actually want as citizens. And some leverage has to be extracted for that dynamic to change. And I encourage people to look to the development of the People's Party as well. Uh, Ryan? No, I think he'll do a lot worse than, than Jill Stein did. And it's, and it's not a, really a function of uh, you know, his relative impressiveness versus hers. It, it's more the, that thir- the recently third-party candidates or, or left-wing third-party candidates have done better after eight years of Democratic rule. You know, so, you know, Democratic voters watched Bill Clinton from 92 to 2000. They, there was some frustration with him. So Ralph Nader gets his two and a half percent. Then they see a Republican in the White House. So in 2004, there's virtually zero third party support. 2008, again, virtually zero two party support. Then you get eight years of Democratic rule and, and you get a, you know, again, you get a these number of Democrats were like, oh yeah, like these, they, they should have done more. Uh, this is frustrating. And so Jill Stein does not as well as Ralph Nader, but did well enough to, to for that, that we're still talking about her. Then you have four years of Republican rule again, 
and Democratic voters this time are, you know what, never mind with the never mind with the third party. I think that's a pretty that that's that's been the pattern. Uh, and so I would expect it to to continue to hold. It, you know, if you if you talk to people in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or anywhere else and whether or not the people are with the third party is even on the ballot, the fact that that Joe Biden isn't as disliked as Hillary Clinton makes all the difference for for Joe Biden. Um, he's just Uncle Joe. He's inoffensive, and and people also realize that Trump can win. So in in 2016, you had a lot of people who didn't like either candidate, but also thought that Hillary was going to win, but had you know there by you know a sizable sizable margin had a much you know, much um, stronger unfavorable opinions of of Hillary Clinton, and so those folks wind up either with either not voting or with the Libertarian or with with Jill Stein or with Trump. Yeah. But I just want to add, add to that, if we're talking about but for causes for Trump's victory in 2016, you can talk about Jill Stein in states like Wisconsin winning by 20-odd thousand votes or losing by 20-odd thousand votes. But in Wisconsin, there were 88,000 Black voters alone, just looking at Black voters, 88,000 who voted in 2012 and didn't vote in 2016. And according to at least one study that studied the most populous district in the state, when they asked voters why it was that they didn't vote, a very small number said voter disenfranchisement, something like 4%, but something like 60% gave answers that indicated that they felt like the Democratic Party wasn't gonna do anything for them, they didn't change their lives, and that they were politically disaffected. And that's what you need to do to make sure that you win. Not harangue non-voters, not shame non-voters, not say you know you were irresponsible for not voting the way that we liked, but deliver material benefit to people that will actually change their lives after having voted for Democrats for entire generations, basically since. Um, well, I think that's a really interesting point that you both made about the f- coming after eight years of a Democratic administration that does drive up left-wing third-party voting um, because of frustration that the Democrat in office didn't do enough. And if you're right about that and uh, Howie Hawkins' Green Party vote is far below where Jill Stein was in 2016, that is another potentially very important factor as we try to figure out what's going to happen. And I think it works on the flip side, too. I think after four years of watching Trump in office, you know, you'll have some non-trivial number of Republicans who increase their third party share. And, and you're going to see that in the South Carolina Senate race. You're going to see that in Montana, where the libertarian might get five or six percent. It's it, it, I think it's a tendency. It's a universal tendency among humans to be like to not be totally happy with the thing that they have. Well, uh, we will know the answer to all these questions soon enough, Um, hopefully next week, Um, maybe, uh, (laughs) but maybe longer. Brianna and Ryan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. Thank you for having me.